Welcome to the Eco Inquiry Podcast. I am your host, Jennifer Barron. I am speaking to you from the traditional territory of the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, and the Anishinaabe. I am on the Williams Treaty. Our closest Indigenous partners in education are the Chippewa of Georgina Island First Nation. Today, I am speaking with Judy Halpern, who has worked for many years in outdoor and environmental education. She opened Milne Outdoor Education Centre for York Region District School Board and then went on to operate her own company, The Magic Suitcase. She is now an instructor in the Faculty of Education at Wilfrid Laurier University, where she teaches courses to pre-service teachers about environmental and outdoor education, as well as integrating social justice issues. Judy speaks with us about the term local. Yes, that's global, which she coined to combine the environmental movement's classic slogan, Think globally, act locally. Judy walks the talk. She is the coordinator of the Educator and Leadership Institute in Nepal. She also partners with Learning for a Sustainable Future to deliver workshops for teachers about how to teach the curriculum through an environmental lens, safely outside, and currently with LSF, how to implement the United Nations goals for sustainability. I know you're going to enjoy listening to the strategies and wisdom Judy shares with us today. Welcome to the Eco Inquiry Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Barron. Today, I'm speaking with Judy Halpern. Judy is the instructor in the Faculty of Education at Wilfrid Laurier University, and she's the coordinator of Educator and Leadership Institute in Nepal. Good morning, Judy. How are you? Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Jennifer. Thank you for inviting me. And from which treaty are you speaking? I am sitting on the um, territory of Mississauga, the Odawa, the Anishinaabewaki, and I am on Treaty 72, which is in Pike Bay, Ontario. And I can see the wind flowing through your hair <laughs> and you, uh, you have a reflection of a beautiful tree in the window behind you and you're sitting outside so on Lake Huron. So that's just wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, people who are listening to this podcast or have been listening to it will know that we're recording in the summer of 2021, but it's airing in the fall. So um, Judy, I've known you for a long time and uh, in, in a bunch of different capacities, but I'm wondering if you could tell us your environmental education citizenship story. What brought you to this work? Yeah, thanks for, thanks for your interest, Jennifer. Um, I think it started when I was little and my parents would not let me come inside after school and I would have to be outside for hours and hours and um, and I spent a lot of time by myself outside uh, really just engaging um, with with the stuff around me and I think that really became my my place of peace my place of solace and so I sought as many opportunities as I could to get outside my parents being Eastern European immigrants didn't really we didn't spend time in nature so for me it was pretty special a pretty special place to be anyway um, when I went to university I, I had an opportunity to volunteer at the Forest Valley Outdoor Education Center and uh, all of a sudden I found my peeps like I would sit around the lunch table and people would talk about the birds at the bird feeder and and the animals that went by and I was fascinated I just I, I just soaked it all in so um, when I when I when the opportunity arose once I'd been teaching in the classroom for a while 
an opportunity arose in York Region, where I worked, to open a new outdoor education center. And I applied for the job. Uh, I was seconded for a four-year position. And um, that really changed my whole way of teaching. So um, I, I probably learned more in my four years at the Outdoor Ed Center than I did in my 25 years in the classroom and before and after. So that was life-changing for me. Um, after that, I uh, returned to the classroom. And um, I had an opportunity while I was at the center to ex experiment with a bunch of different ways of engaging kids outside. And um, our, it was so satisfying. It was just so satisfying to be outside with kids and to see those so many aha moments that um, I really, I, I, wanted, I wanted more. <laughs> so I, um, I decided that uh, I would start a... Um, I, I would go back to school. I would uh, I would look into why those experiences outdoors. And for me, I was a, a big fan of children's literature. Why bringing children's literature and books outdoors was such a great engaging way to teach kids content that they needed to learn. Um, it was an opportunity for kids to ask questions, to truly explore. And secretly, I had a hero, a teaching hero, Miss Frizzle from the Magic Suitcase. I looked like her. I liked to dress up in costume. My mom sewed me costumes. I liked the earrings. I, I decided, I decided that I uh, wanted to uh, put all that together and uh, pilot a, an outdoor program using stories. That's a long answer to your short question. <laughs> oh, there's so much to dig into, Judy. I have a couple of basic questions. First of all, I want you to know that you are a heroine of mine, and, and I've admired your work for decades. And I hope our listeners can hear just the rich amount of experience that Judy has, and she hasn't even gotten into uh, the work that she's doing at the Faculty of Education now. So, but before we get into that, Judy, where did you grow up? Where did you spend all of this time outside? I grew up in Toronto, in, um, you know, in the suburbs in Toronto, in, um, in North York. And um, yeah, just uh, where did I spend my time? That's a good question. We had a little parquette behind our house. And uh, nowhere really fancy, just in you know. The it's so interesting. I mean, I grew I grew up in Newmarket. I, I was born in Northwestern Ontario for the first five years of my life, and really had mm. that nature connection. And then when we came to Southern Ontario, I craved finding nature, and you had to find it in little creeks that ran through subdivisions, you right. know, or or you'd play in a barn that then you know. Two, two months later, it would get plowed under and turned into a mm. found, found these spaces. So you said you spent a lot of your time alone. Can you delve into that just a little bit about sort of introspection and wellness and finding nature in, in urban spaces? Yeah, that's an interesting point because um, I, I, I don't know if my parents were unique in that um, they just didn't really want me in the house. Whereas I think this is a Gen X thing. I mean, you I, know, we're a little bit far apart in age, but not too much. Yeah. And I mean, this this was being raised. I call my mom the Winona Ryder of Stranger Things. I mean, she was like, don't come in until the streetlights come on. I'm like, don't yeah. worry about anything. But if aliens yeah. show up, I'm there for you. I mean, exactly. I just think it was a different way of, of raising children. 
Definitely. And, you know, we didn't, um, our parents didn't have uh, a lot of the fears that I think um, I, I see, I hear about um, young families experiencing now, not even young families. I mean, you know, probably <laughs> um, when, you know, as you said, there is an age difference between us, but um, anyway, I was just out outside all the time and um i i didn't mind that i wasn't playing with friends i was with friends all day in school and there was something just about being out there using my imagination and playing with whatever was in the backyard that engaged me and um i learned later as an adult that i craved those i became to i i, I looked for those opportunities where i could get outside doing nothing by myself but just sort of soaking in what was around me and um, so I really true. became my solace. It's so true. You know, teaching is such an extrovert profession and we feel yeah. this responsibility of hope as environmental educators. But, you know, in order to recharge, our introvert souls need that, that time in nature. And I, I've certainly come to terms with that, particularly through COVID. I mean, it's yeah. been such a solace and you can see that it has been for so many other people. I agree. And I think too, that, that there's something about, as you said, when you're teaching, you're, you're engaging all day, you're talking all day, you're, and there's something about that quiet and that, um, that just need for um, just soaking in, having an opportunity to take in and not putting out because you've been putting out all day. So exactly. I, I, yeah, yeah. And, and I had a very similar experience at university where, you know, going up in Newmarket in the 1980s kind of material girl world where I was realizing things like, um, you know, the nuclear arms race and even then global warming. This is 35 years ago and uh, environmental degradation and that sort of thing, which really concerned me. Didn't concern a whole lot of people back then, you know. Um, <laughs> yes. So when I did environmental studies and indigenous studies at Trent, I also found my people. So I'm curious, where did you go? Where did you go to university? I went to York, and <sighs> um, I was actually in phys ed, um, and uh, it was a little bit of a disconnect for me because um, although I love to play sports I wasn't never very competitive or, or to be honest never very good sure. at, at any particular sports and I I see again I always sought things that were individual in nature like I would go uh, to the hiking club and the orienteering and things yeah. that would get me outside and I could be uh, not you know um, yeah it was just an I, I sought the individual stuff out more than the team stuff did you cross-country ski ever Absolutely. Uh, the yeah, best, yeah. Right? yeah, it is yeah. the best. It still is. It still is the best. <laughs> it is a lifetime solo sport and you can do it obviously with people, but it gets you back into places in the wintertime. That's just, that's just amazing. It's, and you know, it, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's funny too, that um, that individual thing just carries on because uh, although I love to pat to canoe, when I got my kayak and I became oh. independent with my kayak, it's, I think again, my husband thought I was leaving him like Bye! No, I just, because it's every, just such an independent, you know, yeah. you and I are kindred spirits in this yeah. way. It's kayaking is my favorite thing to do in the summertime and then cross country skiing in the wintertime. It just gets you to this really spiritual place of reconnecting yeah. with yourself and with nature with something bigger. And if our listeners are 
are resonating with this, it's um, it really is an antidote to eco-anxiety, to stress. Mm. It refuels your jets. And, you know, even if there are some moments that you could string together where you say, the world isn't falling apart right at this very second, right where yeah. I am right now, so that you can go back and do the environmental education work that we feel compelled to do. That's an excellent point. It is. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So Judy, there's something else that we have in common. So there are five outdoor education centers in York Region District School Board. And um, I started Sybil Point Outdoor Education Center and you started Milne, correct? That's right. Outdoor yes, Education Center in Markham. So we're one of five people who, who have the, I don't know, the privilege of saying we've had the opportunity to actually pioneer or start outdoor education centers in a big district school board. So, um, now you mm. said that bringing children into the outdoors, I take it you did your master's of ed to explore more into the strategies. Yeah. So, um, you know, I started toying with um, children's literature because in my regular classroom teaching, I, I was just a big fan of children's literature. And, and again, you know, Ms. Frizzle probably opened a few doors for me there, too. Absolutely. But, me, too. That's yeah. so funny. Yeah. With the yeah, hair, it's right? Really, it's the hair. Yeah, the hair. <laughs> exactly. The kids call you teach science. You got frizzy hair. They're like, yeah. And, and I mean, this, this, you know, make, take chances, get messy. It just that, that her, her mantras resonates with experiential learning. And so much about asking questions about getting kids to ask questions. And there was something about um, using stories to get kids outside. Um, this is sort of how the magic suitcase came about. I didn't have a school bus, so I had a suitcase. But the the point was that we would tell a story or read a story indoors to get kids sort of engaged in the topic. And then we somehow started to live that story when we went outside. And what was most exciting is that if we embedded content, science curriculum content or whatever subject we we're doing in the story, kids remembered it. I mean, we remember stories so much more than factual information. So um, I was fascinated with how kids would learn through story and be able to reiterate um, what they learned. So I really wanted to learn more about how this all works. And that was really the impetus to go back to school to say, why is this successful? Why, why is this working? And um, it gave me an opportunity to dig deeper and to uh, look at things like how imagination builds um, capacity for content and how story can do that. And I, I mean, I learned a tremendous amount doing my thesis and um, yeah, it just opened other doors for me to then share that information with teachers and starting to get into PD and, and then suddenly I owned a bookstore because I kept buying books. <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly I had a, an inventory of 50,000 stories in my basement. But um, yeah, so that's sort of how it all came about. And uh, going back to school really, really helped solidify for me how and why uh, that works. Well, the eco, the eco Inquiry website has suggested books, picture books on every page. And I think that as a elementary school teacher, any teacher, we really um, value books, the power of story. And like you said, the the entry points, but you said that you found answers. Can you share or elaborate upon the answers that you found in your thesis while you were doing that work? 
Yeah, so that was really interesting. But even before I get to that, I just want to mention that um, I do now crave your picture book page on your eco inquiry. Oh, thank uh, website. you. Because I once I closed the magic suitcase and stopped selling books, uh, this has become a big hole in my life. I miss pictures your books more than anything and, and you know uh, judy there's more and more coming out all the time I you know i teach environmental ed aqs for etfo and the second module the final assignment is an annotated bibliography and i look forward to it every I whenever it. i get the opportunity to teach the course because there's constantly new yeah. books and there are more diverse books because yes i don't know if you found this but there was a dearth there was an absence of Definitely. books where there were were um, Black characters as protagonists, Indigenous characters as protagonists, Asian uh, characters as the, as the main hero or heroine. And that fortunately is starting to change. I don't feel like it's changing quickly enough, but I don't right. know. What, what do you have to say on that based on your you know, many decades of experience? Definitely. And not only um, has that changed or is changing, changing slowly as you say it really is changing slowly but there is um there is more attention paid to the sophistication of picture books a really good picture book is really a very sophisticated tool and um what i learned as to answer your question from before what i learned going back to school and doing my thesis is the depth the possibilities of the depth of something like a picture book tool and how a really good writer who is sometimes also the illustrator can actually tell two completely different stories just through their talents of um, writing in writing the text and then um, doing the illustrations which could tell a side story which you really only start to realize when you um, when you start to dig deeper with children into the book and uh, I do, I, I'm one of my favorite authors, and I don't know if she's any, put anything new out recently, but um, Emily Gravitt, who is um, a UK author, and uh, she wrote, one of the books I did, it I, I picked apart in my thesis was her book called Wolves. And um, it's just, you know, when an uh, author illustrator has that level of sophistication that they could use things like um, how your eye moves across a page um, because of the way the illustrations are drawn or um, how, the, um, how the colors in the chosen palette will help you predict what's coming next. Just really deep stuff that, um, and of course, use of imagination. And uh, Kieran Egan, who is a prof out in, um, I think at UBC, has done some fabulous work on that, as has recently Jillian Judson in her walking curriculum stuff. She does a great thing on imagination and imagination education. And yeah, I just think that there is so much to that tool, that picture book tool that um, we can use as a springboard for such, uh, for really deeper concepts, even in beyond elementary. Absolutely. I mean, like you said, they're very, very sophisticated books. And I, I haven't taught um, high school. I'm qualified to teach high school. Haven't done it. But certainly K to eight, even the intermediate mm. students sitting under a tree love listening to a story and a complex story. You know, I'm yeah. thinking of Celia Godkin's book, mm. Fire, yes. Violin, yeah. um, Sea Otter yeah. Inlet. And 
Um, and even, you know, these are for younger students, but Jan Brett's books with the picture with the borders and the complex right. around the borders. And my students choose these books over and over again and just, you know, will look at them so, so carefully to see what yeah. the story is in the illustration. Um, that's beautiful. And I think too, by teaching kids to look deeper into um, into a good, sophisticated book, gives them a, a different appreciation for the genre. Like, um, you know, there are some picture books that are that are okay, but there are some that are really works of art. And um, and again, teaching kids to uh, pick it apart and really try and understand all of the different ways that the author and the illustrator are communicating with us as readers. Um, or as viewers is uh, really will help those, your students develop a love of that genre um, as they explore and have their own favorite authors, which is pretty exciting. It is exciting. And how do you see that integrating the curriculum? What, what other pieces of curriculum do you see coming together in, in those sorts of books? It isn't just language arts. Well, that's, that was the beauty of some of the work that I got to do is because, you know, we often think, well, it's a good language connections to read a story, but I've used picture books in every single subject right up to high school. And, um, you know, initially with older kids, it's a little bit of a shock, like you're going to read us a story <laughs> and then you get into it and they're like, wow, like that's deep. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I think that that's, I think that's, that's pretty exciting. Judy, how many conference do you, conferences do you think you've gone to carrying boxes and boxes and boxes of books over the years? Yeah, I lost count. Went, I drove <laughs> two cars into the ground trying to haul my books back and forth. <laughs> Thank you for your dedication for that. You really inspired me for so many years seeing you at a COEO conference and an OT conference with all these new books. It was so exciting. So you've taught from elementary students to teacher candidates at the Faculty of Education. And, um, you know, uh, you've talked to us about books, but, but what else do you teach at the Faculty of Ed? What, how do you teach environmental education and inspire new educators to implement some of the strategies in environmental ed with their students? Um, well, I, I appreciate you asking that question because um, it has been a, a little bit of a struggle. So I teach at the faculty and I, and I love, I love, love, love working with pre-service teachers because um, if at any point in time I've, I've gotten cynical, they remove my cynicism because Absolutely. they're so excited to get out there and to work with kids. So that's been, that's really helpful to have, to be around people like that. But I teach um, PJ science. So that's been where I get to, um, to uh, do a lot of the hands-on um, exploring. And I always include um, uh a class on being outside and looking for science outside. But then I do also teach um, an, an environmental education elective. And as well, I got to teach a global education um, elective and I got to write that course. So that those have been pretty, um, pretty exciting too, because it's allowed me to, to go a little bit deeper into um, the importance of of environmental education and bringing that together with a global perspective. Actually, my colleague and I run a, a co-curricular um, little um, program called GLOCAL, which is bringing those two concepts together and getting students outside looking at 
that the world is a bigger place than our classrooms and our so school that's boards. really I, I'm very interested in systems thinking and mm-hmm. I was introduced to Fritjof Papra in university about 30 years ago and then took his course at the Center for Ecological Literacy in Berkeley mm. and really I love this term can I borrow this from you global so by yeah. that you mean this think locally act locally and really what you're doing is is this systems thinking to me where you've got um you know, the empathy of the social justice aspect linked into environmental education and the science of ecological literacy. That's that's what I try to do in my environmental ed courses as well and what I'm trying to do with this website. But can you tell us more about global and weaving in the social justice issues? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the, the global concept is that, um, you know, we do talk about the think um, globally and act locally. But beyond that, we also have to start to recognize that what is happening um, out there is also part of what's happening out here. So um, we start to recognize, um, you know, I, I'm going back to my early days in teaching where we used to raise money for uh, Amazon rainforests, right? Yes. And we totally ignored the fact that we had forests, rainforests here in Canada that were being yes. decimated, right? And yes. and so we're finally looking or, or, you know, we're feeding the hungry in, you know, uh, Ethiopia, but we're not feeding the hungry in downtown Toronto. Yes. So um, we're looking now at um, what are the what are the local impacts to global issues that our students are dealing with on a daily Daily basis in our classrooms, and um, how are we how are we helping students to see the that we are all part of this together? And yes. that's become that's become a real catchphrase in this last year, right? We're well, all in this together. And with COVID, exactly, we see the interaction, but also you know this is August twenty twenty one, and you can't turn on the news and not see fires from yeah. related to extreme temperatures related to global warming. And, you know, there's just been a, a report put out just last week that we are we are at this tipping point, right, of, of global warming. And, you know, as well, um, I've done the same sort of thing leading projects at my school with water, where mm. a lot of the educators wanted to talk about water issues out there as though we didn't mm. have water issues in Canada. You know, we right. have more fresh water than any other country on the planet. And yet we have well over 100 First Nations on long term boil water advisories. So what about our own Indigenous communities and our responsibility as Canadians to our Indigenous communities and how is how is that connected? So it's so important to raise these issues with new teachers because really, you know, and I love, I have taught at the faculty, I love what you said about their enthusiasm. It's incredible. But they are the people who are going to um, affect students and the next generation yeah. of students. And so um, how do you how do you find their response? How how do they fit it into what they're doing in their their practicums and things like that? Yeah, so that's an excellent question because, you know, anybody who's been through um, the faculty of education program knows how intense it is and how busy students are. It's so, so intense. And so, yeah, how do you make it not, um, how do you make these things not an add on? How do we shift our thinking into understanding? Oh, it's pouring rain right now. (laughs) Um, I'm I'm going to have to um, just skate yeah, here. You go inside. So while you're going inside, I'm just going to keep talking for one second. Yeah. So one of the ways that, you know, I, I've taught at the faculty of ed in primary junior as well, 
um, and in the environmental ed AQs that I teach is uh, to integrate, to integrate right. curriculum. So if we use the environment as, uh, or environmental issues as a context for learning and we integrate um, all of the topics, we can cover a lot of ground and in a very real way. I mean, life isn't compartmentalized. Issues aren't compartmentalized. And, uh, you know, um, Natural Curiosity Second Edition is an incredible mentor text with many, many, many case studies for this inquiry approach and this integrated approach and then building knowledge within, within, the, um, within the student body to, uh, to look at these environmental issues that we're talking about in a local context and, and integrating, integrating our curriculum. There's so much math that we can do, science that we can do. And um, our listeners can't see, but I've really been talking to you because Judy was outside and now she's inside <laughs> and she had to move with her computer. It's pouring out there. <laughs> and, you know, I also hope that the listeners, if they do go back, um, I could hear blue jays and chickadees at the bird feeder. So I thought for a moment it was in my space, but then I realized actually I was hearing the birds from your space, which is really lovely. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for, thanks for filling in that little time there too. But, you know, a lot of what you said is, is um, crucially important. And what I was going to mention before I had to move out there is just that, um, you know, I think the, COVID has emphasized so many different um, aspects in terms of global and in terms of the inequities that exist in our own communities. And um, uh, so a lot of what um, a lot of what you were saying, you know, bringing giving opportunities for our students in the faculty of education, these um, teacher candidates who go out there and who are looking for how do they address curriculum, but how do we address real stuff that's going on and because their students are coming to school with questions and concerns and I mean turn the news on and you know you see severe weather you see fires you see flooding how are how are we not um affected by that as as um, as citizens, right? So, how, and and give and you mentioned something at the very beginning that that word of hope. How do we how do we show our students, both adults, faculty of education students, and young students, um, that hope is not only possible; it's necessary. And um, how do we empower them to be the change makers and be people who contribute positively to the to the planet like how do we teach that and how do we shift our thinking to start to think about um the curriculum is important but how do we embed real stuff into the curriculum so kids feel like yeah they're a part of what's happening it's not just happening to them right it's been a real challenge it, oh, it has been. And, you know, you would probably remember years ago in 1998 when the Lieberman and Hardy study came out that said, oh, my goodness, standardized test scores actually go up. And they went up in 22 states when they used the environment as a context for integrating the curriculum and learning and literacy and math scores. So I really want a Canadian Made in Canada study of that currently. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> So Judy, having taught um, teacher candidates in, for the last couple of years through the COVID pandemic, 
and knowing that we're still we're still in it we're still in it for you know at least another year with hybrid and students online and delta variant and you know let's not talk about that too much so we don't get all panicky but what were some good strategies that you saw that you saw with your students and and you know even with the work that you've done with learning for a sustainable future where you're sharing some of these strategies with teachers to help them improve and and gain confidence in teaching online and even even potentially a hybrid situation right well i i will say that i missed my students terribly i can just imagine i mean you taught you teach young children i i my I bow down to anyone who was able to get through this past year. I don't know how, to be honest, that you were able to engage your kids and keep them engaged. And actually, Jennifer, so much of what you wrote about in um, in your blogs and on your on your site, I think, kept a lot of people going because. Oh, that's so um, sweet. Thank you. I just got the shivers. That's very nice. Thank you. Oh uh, no, I it was it was hugely important. Um, you know, so yeah. I mean, even I taught my courses on online, and I just felt such a disconnect from my students. I, um, you know, it's the it's that in person stuff that um, that we crave so much. It's that human connection. But to get back to your question, I think that um, the one of the positives that came out of COVID is the incredible ability for people to adapt kids and adults to adapt to conditions that we are brand new to us and people and I hate the word pivot but I just cannot believe how much people were able to pivot and change no their no it was I mean, incredible technology and technology helping us you and I are in different parts of Ontario we're having this conversation I know we all yeah. got zoomed out but um and that's one of the reasons why I flipped over to the podcast I love to write but you know, yeah. my my eyes needed a break. And yeah. so I started walking and listening to podcasts so I could keep learning, but learn in a different way. And um, I just found it really, really inspiring and helpful. So, you know, I I think that there are some strategies and some things about online that that, you know, I obviously, obviously I would prefer oh. in person. There's without right. a doubt. And and I hope all of my students come back because at York Region we've um Apparently we're going with hybrid and I, and that's mm -hmm. going to be very challenging, but, you know, we're talking about books. So having the flexibility of programs, reading programs mm -hmm. online, such as Raz Kids or Epic, Get Epic for Kids or, um, and being able to share a book where in all honesty, all eyeballs are on the book, yeah. you know, um, that that was there was some flexibility there that was that was okay and like you said the flexibility is is key so that's why i started to create these uh choice boards to because you know and, and i've just created a way for eco games to become hybrid where the morse code symbols i've put them on the card i pre-populated them on the card and then the teacher can make a copy so they could be outside playing the game with the students that are there and then for the students online because the sense of belonging is key the building right. the relationships is key where 
you know, their their game sign um, already has the Morse code symbols pre-populated and they have to decode the secret environmental message and then the, the wrap-up, the consolidation, the coming back together so that people feel sense of belonging. That's the piece, honestly, that gives me the most anxiety is, you know, we want to connect with people and we want our students to feel a sense of belonging, but we are really stretching ourselves to figure out how. How do we do that online? But listen to what you just described. Like that to me is amazing. It is amazing to me that not only are you engaging the kids that you have in front of you because you're, they're playing a game, they're, they're running around, they're learning stuff, and then they're, um, they're getting a secret message. Like all of those are like the little, the little tips and tricks that um, make teaching real and mm -hmm. powerful and um that joy that the kids have when they find it or they discover it or they, they decode it or and then so you're there with them and you're doing that and they're experiencing it but those poor kids who are doing it online are getting a similar experience like that to me that's beyond what we thought was possible mm -hmm. until this year when it became possible and exactly. And what so, I realized with my data, I'm doing my master's of ed this year. And what I realized with my data is that the students who showed up online still progressed. So which is incredible. If, if they were yeah. face to face and then pivoted to online, and it takes support really at a young age. Yeah. But, you know, it's like close encounters of the third kind. If you build it, will come. <laughs> so if, if they were present, then they progressed. My concern is sometimes this fear that we talked about much, much, much earlier, that this pervasive fear actually prevents people from showing up. Right. right? So, so having these little tips and tricks and, you know, the outdoor ed online field trip, it was the one day this spring where I had every single student present. Wow. They all showed up. They all wanted to be a part of that, even though it was online. So maybe I have to pitch every day like a field trip, but it is exhausting. <laughs> it is exhausting. You're right. But, you know, that's that really that that says a whole lot, a whole lot there that it's those real life experiences, right? Like you're going on a field trip. So this means you're going out into the real world and you're doing um you're doing school stuff, but it feels like real stuff, right? And this exactly. is where this is where the real um, the magic of um, of it all coming together happens, right? Where kids see that why am I learning this? And then they're out in you're out in the real world, and you need that information to be able to do participate, engage, function, all of those things, you need that information, all of a sudden, the learning becomes real. And um, that's like when the penny drops for kids, too. And they're like, wow, this is important. This is really important stuff. So the um, yeah, I, I think we learned a lot of lessons from COVID. And what my hope is that we don't as we we feel like we're coming out the other end, although I'm not so sure we are yet. Mm -hmm. But um, that people uh, are not so freaked out about the curriculum that we've missed, because look at what kids have learned that has nothing to do with curriculum, right? Absolutely. Look at what they've taken in. They've taken in their surroundings in a totally different way that we never would have experienced if we didn't, um, if we didn't, weren't forced to, to, to change the way we approach things. Um, you know, their focus level has changed, their techno 
their abilities with technology. They're, they're seven. They're tech experts. It's experts. I know, really, it is astounding. And so um, they have learned a lot. They just, uh, it's just not traditional learning and <laughs> which, you know, it's almost an oxymoron, traditional learning, what we call it. it anymore, right. Exactly. Um, Judy, I, if you cannot answer this question specifically, and maybe I should have asked you whether I could ask you this question or not beforehand, but I know that you're doing a little bit of work at the Ministry of Ed with, um, with, uh, the new science curriculum. And I'm wondering, you know, are there opportunities do you still see, I'm hoping, for using the environment as a context for learning? Is there more, less, same? What, what can you tell us? Well, I, I actually am sworn to secrecy. <laughs> okay, so you <laughs> did have to decide. Mm -hmm. I can't, I can't tell you a lot, but I can tell you that uh, my, um, in my position, I've been asked to look at it using an environmental lens. So the fact that I, I get to do that is a very positive thing. So um, yeah, that's, uh, I, and I, it's at the early stages, I think. I think there's gonna be a lot of editing and, and uh, reworking before it's released. But um, I do think that there is debt, like you, you couldn't release a new curriculum now and not pay attention to what's going on in the world around you. So it, not only um, environmental sustainability, but we have to look at sustainability in the big picture. And really through my work at Learning for a Sustainable Future at LSF, um, you know, we, we are looking at what is sustainable education? What does that really mean? How do we incorporate, how do we shift our thinking to those sustainable development goals from the UN and incorporate those important concepts into our, our work. I mean, it, it fits naturally. We just have to shift our thinking to make it fit because this is the real world and this is what's important. I know. And, you know, being in this game, as long as you and I have, I'm, I'm, I'm never patient enough. But, you know, in writing the environmental issues <laughs> on the curriculum and then revising them, um, it's, it's, I feel like that process, like we can't keep up with that even fast enough, you know, it's like mm -hmm. a curriculum feels slightly outdated before it even has an opportunity to come out, but those UN sustainability goals are fantastic. And, uh, I think a really important way for all countries to, to build upon with, uh, the environment movement and let's hope that they, they have teeth. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because um, without looking at it as a as an add on, um, you know, we take a concept like, let's say, uh, a simple project that many of us do at our schools. You know, we have school gardens and uh, thanks to eco schools, really, um, there's been a strong push for action pieces. Right. So uh, growing a garden is pretty a, a pretty typical project and, um, you know, it fits in nicely in the science curriculum. You could do a little math in that. But if you look, if you took that simple project of, of growing a garden and you used an SDG, the Sustainable Development Goal lens, you can start to look at um, deeper things like uh, decolonization. You could look at gender equity. Who works in the garden? Who typically maintains gardens that we get our main food sources from in Canada? Where do our workers come from? What does decent work for decent pay mean? Um, why are women um, more apt to be uh, to take on certain roles in that garden than um, than men? 
what, what does local food mean when you come from a different country and now Canada is your home? What does it mean to grow and eat locally? So you take your typical garden project where we used to just see, you know, how well do bean plants grow? Or can I grow a pumpkin for Halloween? And you start to get into some of the concepts that is, um, you know, where does our water come from that the garden needs? And what are the water issues, as you had mentioned earlier? You can take that one garden project and you could probably look at it through the lens of five or six different one of those uh, goals, those sustainable development goals, and start to really get into some eco-justice and uh, social justice issues. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, uh, we're being asked to do that um, now and right, rightfully so it's about time, but we're asked to responsibility as educators. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we have to start asking those tough questions and having those tough conversations, even if they're uncomfortable. And then we have to teach our kids how to ask those questions, but in an appropriate way so that it's not offensive and it's not ignorant, but we're actually looking to seek answers for how we address some of these bigger issues. And so, you know, one of the magical things that I think you have mastered, Judy, is that you're able to take a micro issue like the local school garden and and have this macro lens of the UN sustainability goals. And so that's really global. That's that's your global. And and on a very personal level, you have a, a many, many years of working with um, an agency in Nepal. And I'm wondering if you can tell us about the environmental education work that you do there and how you're a part of that community and what you've done to build that relationship. Yeah, so um, my work in Nepal has come about over um, the last 20 years. And I've actually been to Nepal now 21 times. And it's really like a a second home for us. But um, I did start off with um, my husband and I, um, he worked in an independent school and we started taking students um, to Nepal as part of sort of a a sort of a light service uh, project. And then um, we just looking for excuses to go back and reconnect with our community. We started to take friends and then we started to take colleagues. And through my work at Laurier, to make a very long story very short, my uh, colleague um, has worked in Haiti with this uh, educator and leadership institute. And through my uh, work with him, Dr. Steve Sider, I... um, I got permission to start an educator and leadership institute in Nepal. So we had worked with a few schools in one region and we thought let's pilot um, teachers working with teachers over there. And um, and, and the goal of of, um, the educator and leadership institute, ELI for short, because it's a mouthful, um, was to help build capacity for teaching and learning in global communities. So um, as Canadian educators interacting with Nepali educators, there is um, a big part of it is the reciprocity in learning. So we are sharing our experiences with experiential education and student-centered education, and they're sharing their experiences with working with limited resources and um, in, in very different cultural uh, ways 
than we teach here. Culture is a very big part of their, um, their education system. So um, in terms of environmental education, we've, um, eco clubs have become a big um, movement in Nepal and um, engaging, again, looking there, the sustainable development goals are much more prevalent than they are in schools here in Canada and looking for ways that students can address um, meeting some of those important goals, like understanding the water issues and understanding um, life on land and, and, and um, pollution is a huge uh, problem there. These eco clubs have started to thrive now, mainly as extracurricular programs, but they're starting to seep into their curriculum as well as they are here because there's a need and necessity to answer some of these bigger questions. I think that that's just wonderful. And I've noticed, you know, an international viewing of eco-inquiry with over 107 countries from, you know, 65,000 views from over and, and quite a few from, oh. from Nepal. So, you know, I think, do you think that there's this opportunity for these sorts of reciprocal relationships to happen more? Well, I, I have to say that working online has really helped that for sure. And um, I know that some of the resources that you've put on the, the eco inquiry page, I mean, those are those are easily accessible to people who even have internet or bandwidth issues. You don't need um, fancy, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty accessible. It's pretty simple for so. Um, and there's so much you can address through that, that I think, um, I, I think there's lots there, there has been lots of opportunity, but that collaborative bit of working together through tools like the internet um, has really blossomed in the past year through necessity. I mean, you know, uh, when I when I see um, or follow youth environmental groups and uh, climate strike Friday for you know climate yeah. strike Fridays, this is happening all over the planet. Yeah, youth are mobilizing. They want to be able to solve these problems. And the eco action piece is so important. And, and, you know, giving them the skills to collaborate, communicate, problem solve. I think as educators, this is this, in environmental educators, this is our responsibility. And it's happening all over the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're right. And the movement is strong and um, the kids are smart. Exactly. <laughs> they are. They're so, they're, they're so sophisticated. And now yeah. on social media, what they can do, it, it really yeah. is educators, again, with social media, if we don't bring this into our teaching, they're going to do it after school, right? They're doing, they're doing these things on their right. own time. So we might as well, like you said, have real world connections and bring it in. Um, Judy, I just have one or two more questions. You run workshops for the amazing um, environmental organization Learning for a Sustainable Future frequently. What have you noticed teachers are thirsty for the last couple of years in terms of connecting the curriculum and environmental ed? What really do, do teachers really want to sink their teeth into? Yeah, that particularly this past year, because we too, as an organization, have had to change our in-person um, interactive workshops to online. And so the, I think the biggest, um, the biggest thirst has been, how can I 
teach in the safest and most um, uh, engaging way. So, you know, there's been a big push from the organization to get outside and do real world curriculum based learning. Doesn't matter if your curriculum is if you're in BC or if you're in Nunavut or if you're in PEI, how are you going to address your curriculum outside in the safest way? So that that was probably um, the biggest thirst this year. Uh, the other now what we're seeing is um, as as anxieties are building, you know, us in children and adults. How are we dealing with building anxiety with um, with that building anxiety? So we're going the back health to school. And wellness piece. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going back to school in a month or less. Um, you know, we can't just dive right back into curriculum. We have to debrief what this year has been about, right? Like people need to talk mm-hmm. about it. not only kids, teachers need to talk about it, kids need to talk about it. And we need to talk about what does it mean to move forward now? Like we're not going back to what the way it was. Thank goodness. <laughs> Maybe there's a lesson there, but um, you know, how do we move forward? So I think that that is how do we deal with some of these anxieties has been um, a big push. And actually LSF this summer is working on sort of these discussion kits to start the new school year. What, how are we going to start those discussions with kids so that they feel they have a safe place to talk about what's been going on and what can I do now to move forward? This is a part of the master's action research that I'm doing. And I have a project that's due in the middle of October. So, you know, I just got it approved. So one of the, um, one of the pieces, it's really around uh, attendance and, and the relationship to learning engagement. And so I am, I do have a, a, a math and reading component with trying to find the most flexible programs for both yeah. person and online. But we're also working with the third path by uh, Tranter and et al. Um, and, <laughs> and, you know, the first few steps of creating a sense of belonging. Uh, to me, safety doesn't just mean physical safety and protocol, mm. COVID protocols, it's emotional safety. Yes. And um, some of the things that we might take for granted or assume as environmental educators that, for example, everybody feels safe outside. Not true. Not everybody feels emotionally safe outside. So how can we take those experiences? You know, in the first Eco Inquiry podcast um, where I was speaking with Rabia Kokar, we're talking about how do we unpack our backpack as environmental Mm -hmm. educators? And let go of some of these assumptions that we have that that um, that we think everybody feels safe. And how do we unlearn and relearn ways to bring in the students' identities and with their families and their family experiences of going back to like what you said, you know, where as a child you found uh, the wilderness or nature in an urban setting. So what are some of the experiences that the children have starting there and bringing that into our schoolyards? Maybe it means that we're not going to do community walks for a little while. We're just going to stay in our schoolyard and, and try and build up that capacity for physical safety and, and emotional safety. And how do we bring in the students who are online with that as well, right? So that is so important, Jennifer, what you just said, that is so crucially important to um, that not everybody feels safe outside. And that's such a good point. And some, and, you know, we, 
the, those of us who love being outside sometimes forget that and sometimes forget that um, I had this experience when I was working at the outdoor center and I remember a young child saying to me like, are there snakes out there? And I'm like, if we're lucky, then we'll see right. one. And he's like, I'm not going, <laughs> I'm absolutely not going out know. there. Right? Yeah. And it, it like the penny dropped for me to go, not everybody comes from a place where snakes are something that you want to see. Right. So it's really um, being sensitive to that. And as you said, it's um, so much of that safety is around emotional safety for sure. And, um, you know, being in the school, staying in the schoolyard is not, um, you could do it a lot out there in your very own comfortable schoolyard. And um, still, for those students who have a lot of experience outdoors, they're going to get a, a deeper, richer experience than those who have a little experience outdoors. You can satisfy many needs in that, um, in your own little schoolyard. I really believe. Judy, that. just to finish off, I hope I don't put you on the spot with this too much, but can you think of a couple of books that could be used as mentor texts to um, inspire the sense of calm, inclusivity, wellness, inquiry, yeah. as books to, to start the year or to maybe be that first time that you take your students outside and, and read a book and have them explore a little deeper? Are there any that kind of come to mind as a couple of your favorites? Oh, goodness. <laughs> oh, many, I, wish, right? I wish you would have asked me that before. Yes. Um, uh, you know, there's there's some oldie goldies out there that, um, you know, there's some, as you said earlier, we, we talked about some new stuff that's coming out that's fantastic, but there are some really beautiful um, older uh, books that have been around for a while. And, you know, I think of, um, I, I think of, um, you mentioned Jan Bread, I think of Shel Silverstein, some of his simple poems about just uh, the joy of um, where the sidewalk ends, right? And, and um, I had uh, a favorite author, um, Lynn Pleurd, who wrote books like Wild Child. And, um, but I think any story that just takes, um, takes us outside and, and again, and I, I can't, I, I, I'm embarrassed that I can't think of the author of this, but um, as the seasons change, winter is coming and just in the forest. And these are simple, simple books with simple text, but they make us um, look closer at what's around us. I think that you've just hit the nail on the head that sometimes simpler is better, you know, yeah. um, that I'm thinking of the listening walk where you just mentioned, yeah. how, you know, that a book can have you see slightly differently where you're observing. Like yeah. But one of the things I love about the book, the listening walk is that it gets us out of our own head. So we spend a lot of time ruminating and yeah. the human brain tends to ruminate on the negative things in our life. And that can compact mm. our anxiety and our ego anxiety and COVID anxiety. But one of the things I notice when I'm out in nature and I stop ruminating is the sounds were there, mm. but I wasn't hearing them. And I know I've reached a place of calm. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're kayaking or skiing, you could even call it flow mm -hmm. where, where you're hearing the birds, you're hearing mm -hmm. the rustling of the wind and the leaves. And that 
being in the present moment and feeling that calm and connection is really a gift, I believe, that we can share with our students. It's helping them to develop this reciprocal relationship that, you know, nature is taking care of us and giving us a gift. And then we can feel this responsibility to take care of the water and the land and, you know, the animals and, and that sort of thing. So it's developing this reciprocal relationship, but in a, in a, in a simple and gentle way. And, you know, that book that you mentioned, Listening Walk has been around for, for yonks. It's an old book, but it's um, again, you're right. It's um, it's, there's not a complicated story. It's a simple story about just taking in, being in the moment and taking in what's around you. And I sometimes um, by allowing or teaching children how to do that, I think you have to teach kids how to be in the moment because we're so busy with, um, um, you know, our lives are busy and we're, uh, we're work, used to working at a very quick pace. To do that is, is also a gift to teach kids, just be in the moment. Don't worry about what's going to happen an hour from now or what happened this morning when, when you woke up, just take in what's around you. And that reciprocity piece that you talked about you know, I've been reading Braiding Sweetgrass and probably Absolutely. reading it. I, I, I can't, I can't speak enough of how important that reciprocity piece is and where is it in our curriculum? I'm struggling with this um, uh, right now, trying to find ways that we can do small acts and, and with our children, simple, small ways of showing gratitude, like leaving bird seed, moving the maple keys out of the path but the lawnmower, you know, simple, simple things that make children feel like, make all of us feel like at least I'm acknowledging that I can show gratitude for what we have has, yes. um, has become an important piece. So true. Tawana Brooks, our, our board's previous First Nations Métis and Inuit consultant came in and shared with us this, mm. this, you know, Indigenous way of knowing of reciprocity and, and respect and that, you know, it, it has to go both ways. We can't just take, take, take from mother nature. We, we also have to have to give back. And in those moments, um, you know, we really can teach students these mindfulness moments. I call them awareness moments, mm. you know, where if we string them together, we can actually begin to lead a, a more calm life. You know, right. you have to let go of social media, let go of the news sometimes, not to say that that stuff isn't important or out there, but if it inundates us constantly to the point of being overwhelmed, then, then we can't be in that giving place or that emotionally safe place. So sometimes, like you said, we just have to, and what you learned from a really young age and figured out on your own, <laughs> we as environmental educators can share that gift with our students to help them figure out how, how to do that with sand thoughts, thoughts, reading a book, listening to sounds outside of our heads. So Judy, you have shared so much wisdom, so much of your experience. Thank you so, so much for coming onto the Equal Inquiry podcast. Jennifer, thank you so much for having this conversation with me because I really, really get such joy out of talking to you and talking to people who are really connected and understand how important it is to keep those connections alive. And you've done such great stuff with kids. Thanks.